I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to uh, Exodus uh, 23. Exodus 23. We're going to read verse 20 down to the end of the chapter of verse 33 and consider those uh, same verses tonight um, under the idea of uh, making spiritual progress and what that what that looks like. So before we read the passage and take a look at it, and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we look to you to illumine your word. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in him. So we each have a need in our hearts to come to know Jesus for the first time or to grow in our knowledge of him. We each have a need for holiness, and we ask that by the simple means of just reading what you've revealed and thinking about it, meditating on it, that you would so work in us that we would be those inclined to grow and equipped uh, to grow spiritually more like uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you'll accomplish these things all for your glory and by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. Exodus 23 at verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. As for the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Brothers and sisters of hope, church and everyone listening uh, tonight, Israel's expansion to the land of Canaan was, uh, from a redemptive historical perspective, a unique event a one-time event that occurred after God brought Israel out of Egypt, crossed them over the Red Sea, watered in the wilderness, dealt with the rebellion, the generation died, and now Joshua gets to take them into the promised land. It's a unique um, uh, event. We might ask ourselves, what is Israel's uh, conquering the promised land and God's involvement in that have to do with us in the new covenant, you know, thousands of years uh, later, And I would argue it has much to do with us, but in some 
very different ways. The Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, and we've been brought out of slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Israelites crossed over the Red Sea, transferring from the kingdom of Egypt to the wilderness, came to a different place. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And the Israelites are making progress on their way to the promised land, but they have many battles to fight as they make progress in that. And we are making progress toward heaven, but we have many spiritual battles to fight with our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in order to make progress in our holiness. And Israel's progress in purging her enemies from her midst is akin to our progress in purging our enemies from our lives as well, growing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You could argue that this is a bit of a picture of sanctification, spiritual progress, what it looks like to take more ground, as it were, and what the Lord's design is for us in that as believers. And before we walk into some of the ways uh, this works, I want us to notice this angel of God. So if you look at verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, there are some characteristics about this angel that stand out. I want us to notice them just briefly. The angel goes before the people, leads the people, and protects the people. The angel is someone they have to obey. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him, obey his voice. And he's someone who commands obedience and respect. He has to be obeyed. Verse 21, don't rebel against him. The angel has the authority to forgive sins. That's, that's a fascinating one. <laughs> the Lord's name is in the angel. And then the angel will blot out Israel's enemies. So clearly the angel is powerful. Now the angel could fit the description of some powerful human being. Joshua might fit this description a little bit. Um, goes before the people, leads the people, does the best he can militarily to protect the people. Uh, the angel is someone they have to obey, right? If God's speaking through Joshua or through Moses, the people would have to obey. And the angel will blot out Israel's enemies. You can even argue that that could be accomplished by some, you know, a, a guardian angel or even uh, a strong individual if God was with him like David over Goliath. But that the angel has authority to forgive sins puts us in a whole other realm. The angel has authority not to forgive or to forgive. And we know from Mark chapter 2 that only God has authority to forgive sins. And that the Lord's name is in the angel. My name is with him. I am in him. That suggests that we're dealing not just with some sort of angel, but with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to go before his people, lead them into the promised land, like the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua 6, who, are you for or against us? Remember Joshua asking them, no, I'm, I'm neither. I've got my own purposes here. Uh, this is the pre-incarnate Christ being pictured here as far as what he'll do for his people. So he secures salvation. He goes conquering enemies. And he, and he does this all for the sake of his people. And we would see this fairly clearly as New Covenant believers, right? Jesus comes into our lives. He lives in us now. And he works in us so that slowly we are able to conquer and purge out our enemies as well. So I want us to just see uh, four things in this spiritual progress that the Lord Jesus Christ leads us in. And the first one is spiritual growth is preceded by salvation. I want us to notice that. 
And then the other three, I actually found from a couple of commentators, both saying the same thing. I thought, well, this is really, really divided up pretty easy. Spiritual growth is led by God. It's gradual and it involves the fleeing of idolatry. So those four things. First, spiritual growth is preceded by salvation. And here I have in mind just a 10,000 foot view quick. Let, let's put Israel in the proper place. They have been brought out of the land of Egypt uh, under the blood of the lamb. They've been saved. There's only one reason they're going to make any progress in the promised land. And that's because God's brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves before. If God doesn't bring them out of Egypt, there's no progress. There is no promised land that's coming. They're still stuck in Egypt. And there's no progress in uh, uh, moving toward the promised land. And I just want to highlight what for us is probably very basic and simple. And we've already figured it out and already have it running through our heads. But there is no spiritual progress unless we're born again. And we can all read biographies of people who came to faith years after they were preaching Christ or preaching uh, in the pulpit. Believers who years have tried to grow in faith and grow in uh, um, uh, their spiritual life and they never could and they discovered they actually weren't believers at all. I want to just to say this for us. Every believer will grow. But someone who's not a believer can't grow. It just won't happen. They can put stuff on the outside of their life, like fake fruit, thinking that they're growing, but they're like adding rocks to a rock pile. They're not a fruit tree that's bearing fruit from the inside. So I just want to highlight that, that the Israelites are making progress here. We're going to make progress only because we've been redeemed by God's grace and have a new relationship with them and a new heart. When that happens, we will grow. And what we discover here in this passage is a few details that I want us to flush out. The first of which is that spiritual growth is led by God. So if you look at verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So notice you have to obey the angel, but also God's doing work. So God's almost identified with the angel here again, a bit of a portrait of God the Father and God the Son, the relationship and the Godhead working together. But the Lord's saying he's going to lead the charge in this. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. Whoa. So Israel is involved in this, but God's saying he's leading the way. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. What this passage is making very clear for the Israelites in their day is that when they go into this promised land, God is going to be fighting for them. Now they have a role. They've got to go in and do their work and the inhabitants will flee from before them. So they have a role in this, but it's God's work making sure this happens. And when you jump over to the new covenant, there's this Massive text in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Our responsibility. We've got to be at work, driving on our enemies and fighting this fight and working our salvation out. But why do we do it? What's the basis for our doing it? Why do we have any hope that we'll make progress? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So what's going on in our sanctification? Oh, God is at work, beloved, changing our wills 
changing what we do, pushing us to grow. And because God the Holy Spirit is at work inside of us, we can go out as believers in confidence every day that, hey, there's hope that I can actually make progress because God's at work in me. He didn't just bring me out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light and say, figure this out on your own. Here's the commandments. You're on your own. Uh, make a go of it. Join together with people who are really good at pulling them up, themselves up by their bootstraps and figuring it out. And he says, no, I'm with you in this. I'm actually working in you. And so because God's at work in us, every one of us as believers, no matter the sin, the sins that we might talk to others about, the sins that we don't even want our spouses to know about, no matter the sin, right? God is at work purging and working in us. And so we can go confidently with the Lord, step by step, saying, Lord, you're leading the way, I'm in. There's hope that I can make progress. If it was me on my own, I wouldn't stand a chance. But the Holy Spirit's living in me. He's working in me. I can make progress. I want to just mention a few things before we go to the next aspect of spiritual growth that I want to highlight. Any spiritual growth we enjoy should be a means by which we praise God. If we have seen in our lives, let's, let's back up five years or so. Look back at your, the old self in 2017. If in the year 2022, you can say, I have grown. I have grown in these ways then there's one person who deserves the praise and the glory for that. That's the Lord. And we have reason to praise God and thank him. And those are great things to thank the Lord for. Consequently, all pride in spiritual growth, as though we grew ourselves by ourselves, is misplaced. And then the final thing is this. I want to, true spiritual growth is led by God and involves our hard work, yet we ought never highlight our hard work without giving much credit to God's grace. Paul has this interesting uh, statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. <laughs> okay. And he, he just flat out said it. You put me against Peter, James, John, outworked them all. All right. But catch what he says next. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now you could argue, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's how we began this earlier in verse uh, 10, verse 9. You could argue he's talking about his work as an apostle, but even that's sanctifying work. You could argue he's talking about his work of sanctification and his spiritual growth as an apostle. But in any case, notice what he's doing. I had a responsibility and I poured myself into this, but I want everybody to know that it's not because I'm some sort of a better apostle, because he says just a few verses earlier, I'm the least of the apostles. He says it's the grace of God working in me. That's why I was able to work harder than all of them. So beloved, I don't know how far you've come. You know, C.S. Lewis has this incredible thought. I'm going to paraphrase him. But if you, if you enter the kingdom of God, let's say uh, on a scale of 100 as a 10, and you grow to 20, you have doubled in holiness, as it were. Right? That's incredible. If you enter into the kingdom of God on a moral scale at a 70, and you go up to an 80, you've gone 10 points. But your the way you progress may look very different. And you, we might actually be tempted to think as Christians, hey, I am so much more holy. I've worked so much more harder. Look where the person, the other person came from. Look where Paul came from. I mean, you look at Paul, at least I do, and think this is, this is a guy who's about as sanctified as you can get. But look at his background, his training, his knowledge of the word of God. 
and he had to work through his pharisaical heart. And when God saved him, he's got all that moral training to help and assist him as he goes out and serves the Gentiles. God did an incredible work in his heart. But he takes somebody who's a drug addict off the street and they're barely off of meth or heroin. And all they can do is hold down a job and pay rent and the rest of their life is in shambles. We would say that is amazing. That's amazing work. And they're gonna continue to grow and God's gonna lead the way. But any progress you make cannot lead to pride. Or We've actually not made much progress. We're neglecting something very big that God leads the way in this. The second aspect of spiritual growth, the third sermon point, but the second aspect of it is that growth is gradual. So verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So just think of the land of Palestine. It's fairly good size. The Lord's saying, look, when you come in there, if I just decimate everybody and get them out of there, wild beasts, overgrown vineyards, everything's going to be in shambles by the time you get there. So I'm going to, little by little, have you guys slowly inhabit the land so that when you're ready to inhabit the next part, the vineyards are actually pruned well. <laughs> you can just go in there and take them over and the land's been tilled and you can do your planting. And this means that it will require patience from the Israelites. We're saying this is gonna go as it were in some stages. It requires patience. And that same patience is required of us too as believers as we seek to grow in the Lord. He does this little by little. Now I came across some funny quips about patience that might help put patience in a little bit of perspective, meaning we can recognize how much patience can be in short supply in us as human beings. I had my patience tested today. It came back negative, which is just funny because it's so true often. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet service to see who they really are because we lack patience. Patience is something you admire in the driver behind you and scorn in the one ahead of you. And you can learn many things from children, how much patience you have for instance. These are funny because we recognize that patience is the fruit of the spirit, not a fruit of human nature. When we come into the world, we do not come into the world as patient human beings. But as the Holy Spirit works in us, we grow in patience. And I want us to catch this. We can even grow in our patience with spiritual progress. Progress in ourselves and progress in other people. We can grow in patience. Now for most of us, our lives, will be filled not with the work of being saved, but with the work of being sanctified. We were saved years ago. It's justification's a moment in time, but maybe it took us a year to figure this out and work through it, or maybe it took 10 years. Maybe it was like five minutes. I knew it wasn't a believer. Five minutes later, I know I'm a Christian. That, that's great. But regardless, then we're going to spend the next 70 years like slogging it out <laughs> in spiritual progress. There's only two men that I've ever met who haven't had to do that. The one is the thief on the cross, saved. How do you like that? His process of sanctification, I don't know, a couple hours, amazing, and he's in heaven. And a Wesleyan pastor who Rochelle and I ate supper with, he and his wife, and he claimed he had attained spiritual entire perfection, sanctification, that he never sinned again, but the look on his wife's face after I asked her if that was true, told a different story, but he thought that he was sanctified. But for the rest, all the rest of us as believers, here's what we've got. We've got a life between now and death that's what? Just trying to grow. Just trying to make progress in holiness. We're all trying to make progress regarding the commandments. We may have different commandments we're wrestling with at any given time, but we're trying to grow and be patient in the midst of it. 
when the Lord brought the Israelites into the promised land, what is interesting is that he says, I'm not going to drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In other words, I'm going to bring you in there slowly for your own good. <laughs> That's quite astonishing. The Israelites might be saying, actually, Lord, it'd be better if you just kind of got rid of them all and let us take over the whole thing. No, you're not going to be able to do it. And so for their own good, he's doing this slowly. And I want us to think about just, just a few things I jotted down that if we grew spiritually overnight with no need to wrestle with God or to learn patience in our spiritual growth, we'd have a few things working against us. We'd be prayerless. How many of our prayers aren't filled with cries to God, Lord, I need help. I need grace. I, I am not doing well regarding this fight. Paul talks about prayer all throughout the, the spiritual battle in Ephesians 6, right? The spiritual armor. If we don't, if, if, if all of a sudden we're grown and we're fully sanctified, our relationship with the Lord would be hampered. We, we'd think we wouldn't even need him. I mean, we, we wouldn't call that real spiritual growth, but you see the point. The Lord causes us to be little by little so that we can stay on our knees asking him for help and grace in time of need. Imagine also how condescending we'd be tempted to become if we grew out of sin overnight while other believers struggled. How would our relationships with other believers go? It'd probably be a train wreck. I remember one brother who had a, a real battle with sexual sin. And as he tried to make progress through accountability and just heart work and prayer and diving into the word, uh, he would sometimes be able to go three weeks without pornography or sleeping around. And, and then he'd get really proud of it. And then he'd become so condescending toward other people who struggled that he was even hard to be around. And it came up in every conversation. And then he would fall again. Wash, rinse, repeat for about three years until he discovered and somebody else told him, look, pride comes before a fall. The Lord's keeping you here, maybe for the reason that you can learn some humility, that if you actually do grow in grace, you'll give him the credit rather than you and stop beating up other people when you think you've made progress because you did these steps only to discover three weeks later you've made very little. So, beloved, it's for our humility. It's for our relationships. It keeps us humble. Third, imagine how arrogant our witnessing would be for non-Christians. What kind of a witness would be? <laughs> uh, you get to know your non-Christian friend, and you discover they're a sinner, and you look at, oh, you still sin? <laughs> how would that go? Again, the relationships, would be, they'd be a shipwreck. But every one of us, as we go out into the world to live as light in a world of darkness, has as part of our testimony remaining sin. And that's a great port of contact. We have that in common with every human being. Ours is forgiven in Christ, theirs isn't. But ooh, what a point of contact that we can be humble and acknowledge this. And then if holiness was instant, finally, we'd have no, we'd have no ability to appreciate just how incredible is the obedience of Jesus. You know, we, we strive all our lives and even the holiest among us have just such a long ways to go. Take Moses, take Paul, not even close to perfect obedience. As we struggle, I hope, or what, what can happen is that the more and more we see that we're growing in obedience and yet we see that we have so much farther to go. It's like the farther we go, the farther the finish line gets away <laughs> because we start to see more and more how sinful we are. What a great, precious thing that obedience of Jesus is, isn't it? And to, and to be tempted under, those, under that situation, 
to, to just be totally perfect. The more holy we grow, the more we'll see just how incredible it is that God came in the flesh and perfectly obeyed, perfectly, not a single thought out of whack. And finally, uh, the last aspect of spiritual growth I'd like to just to take a look at or that the text deals with is rejecting idolatry. So verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What's fairly clear, some things just on the surface, is that idolatry is harmful, harmful spiritually. Idolatry does a couple things. It prevents us from enjoying that sweetness of fellowship with God. Now, in the Old Covenant, fellowship and favor with God was somewhat depicted by the blessings he brought into your life, the blessings that he talks about here. Hey, I'll fulfill the number of your days, no miscarrying. Everybody will bear children. I'll get, I'll get rid of the sickness. So that's a picture of what the favor of God looked like in that Old Covenant setting. In the New Covenant, we can certainly say that when we serve God well, avoiding idolatry, loving him above all, there's this sweet fellowship this sweet favor from God that comes in the form of a relationship where we in good conscience know that there's nothing between us and him. We love and cherish him most. There's this incredible fellowship. And even in the book of 1 John, where he talks about fellowship with God so much, he ends it by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why? Because that just destroys fellowship between believers, of course, but between our relationship with the Lord. And idolatry also brings chaos and sin. Verse 33, lest they make you sin against me, it shall surely be a snare. And the word for snare has to do with like a fishing lure or a trap. All these gods, all these idols. Now we're not talking about Hittite gods now and Canaanite gods. We're talking about American gods and gods in Pella, Pelican gods. Uh, they're, a, they're, a, they're a trap. And God says they trap us. They create chaos in our lives. And so idolatry is very harmful. Idolatry is also gradual. So what we're talking about here is the slow, gradual growth and spiritual progress. If we start serving idols and the Israelites start serving idols, what will happen is we will actually slowly start walking backwards the other way in a different direction. There's a book called Playing God, and in it the author writes, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, the idols fail completely. Even as they make categorical demands, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. So it's a gradual thing where we fall out of fellowship with the Lord and backtrack in our spiritual progress until we get rid of those idols. Now, one more thing about idolatry I want to look at is idolatry is often a misuse of good things. That's the challenge of it. That's the, the challenging nature of idolatry. And James Bryan Smith wrote a book called The Magnificent Story. And in it, he said this, I once saw a bumper sticker that said, fishing is my life. My first thought was, that guy can do better. But my second thought was, sounds like idolatry. A better bumper sticker would have read, fishing, thanks, God. 
You see the difference? The one says, hey, fishing's my life. It's my identity. It's my self-worth. It's everything to me. If I lose fishing, you may as well kill me. Just, I want to die. The other one says, fishing, it's awesome. It's great. Just fishing, but I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to fish. And so many of our idols are just like that, right? Good things that grow into divine things. So think of careers. Work a good thing? Yes. Should I find my identity in it? Nope. Family a good thing? Absolutely. Should I find my identity in my children who are a blessing and my wife that's hard to find a good wife, right? Proverbs 31. No, don't find your identity in it. Health, fitness, exercise a good thing? Absolutely. Paul said he beat his body, right? It's a good thing. Exercise is good. Is it uh, is living in order to look good and being on top of the world when I'm in shape and down to the dumps when I'm getting flabby, is that good? No, it looks as become an idol then, right? I want us to think about this as we close. I, I read an article, John Piper wrote an article in 2019. And in this article, he talked about Thomas Chalmers' sermon, The Expulsive Power of the New Affection. He was a Scottish pastor in the early 19th century. And in the article, Piper illustrates the truth of how to get rid of love for the world from, uh, from our hearts, how to get rid of these idols, which is what Chalmers was getting at. Um, and he illustrates it with a science class experiment. And the question was this, how do you get air out of a beaker? Think of, a, some of us might not know, I don't even know if they use beakers anymore, but let's say they do. So a beaker is a little glass thing, a little glass tube that's empty that you can put fluids in and then mix fluids inside of it. Uh, bad definition, but it'll work. He says, how do you get air out of that beaker? Most people start to think in terms of, hey, I get a vacuum and I suck the air out. But everybody knows if you suck air out, nature abhors a vacuum, more air will come in. Unless you just collapse the beaker, then you don't have a beaker anymore and it breaks. Another way to look at it is when you fill the beaker with water. You put something else in there and now the air is gone. And he said that's an illustration of the expulsive power of a new affection. And Piper writes, the most effective way to kill our sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. No one sins out of duty, right? We all get that. Oh, I sinned because I had to. Oh, we sin because we want to. We sin because it's more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy. Now, here's what I want us to think about. How do we get rid of these idols in our lives so that we can spiritually grow? How do we avoid that? Well, we can say, oh, I got to get rid of this idol and this idol. And Calvin said the heart's an idol factory. So we'll just have a new one pop up, right? We got rid of one. Now we have a vacuum. A new idol comes in. How about this? Put a brand new affection in our hearts that's stronger and more powerful than our love of idols. And all of a sudden now we've got a cure for idolatry. So instead of, oh, I've got to get rid of this and rid of this and rid of this. How about I add something in there like water in the beaker? and see how that pushes things out. Let me just do a little bit of a thought experiment here with, with us. What is it about family and career? Let's just take those two together that we look to to provide us with and that actually causes us to end up worshiping them. Stability, right? Unconditional love, maybe reputation, status, understanding. Right? We look for those things in our work or in our family life. And that's funny because families can be incredibly unstable places where you are not well understood and your reputation is dragged through the mud. And work can be a place where reputation and status can change in the blink of an eye, right? 20 years in, one mistake, gone. But yet we can look to those things as irrational as it is and look to them for divine attributes. 
Where can lasting stability and understanding and reputation and unconditional love be found? That will actually satisfy our hearts. We all know the answer, right? Christ, <laughs> yes. But in Christ, we have a reputation that can never be moved. Everyone here who believes in Jesus is a child of God. That's a status you'll never lose. It doesn't matter your performance tomorrow or next week. That's a status you and I cannot lose, beloved. That's incredible. That's something that makes the heart sing. In Christ, we have stability that's immovable. He never changes. <laughs> you think, because he never changes, his attitude toward us and his relationship with us never change. It's an eternal relationship. In Christ, we have a God who understands us, broken sinners with filthy hearts that need cleansing, and he loves us anyways. That's incredible. Talk about understanding. Sympathy. He's been tempted in every way that we are. He knows what it's like to have the devil walk in and throw you against the wall and say, start. He knows what it's like, understanding. And in Christ, we have unconditional love. Nothing can separate us from his love. Beloved, when we drink deeply of that, that is way more joyful than bowing down to family or to a job. It always will be. And when that comes in, or when Christ comes in, and when we, this isn't just, oh, I believe that to be true, but you meditate on it, we think about it, we ingest it, like our souls start eating it and swallowing it. And all of a sudden, we can have incredible joy that just, then what happens with idolatry, they just kind of fade away into the distance, right? And there's a new idol, the right idol. God is on the throne, and we can grow in our spiritual life. One more example. Pleasure, comfort. What do we look for in comforts and pleasures? Now, that's probably going to be different for each of us. That cause us to worship them by means of addictions, the screens or substances or shopping, or I don't know what your form of addiction might be or what you're tempted to. What we're looking for is heaven, right? An escape from reality, an escape from pain. We all like these things. Now, our comforts and pleasures that cause us to escape from pain for just a little bit, are they necessarily bad? No. No, they're, they're great. What a joy they can be for our lives. It's kind of like a respite as we continue to run this race with endurance, like a water stain. Hey, stop and take a break here. Enjoy this. <laughs> Off we go. But when they become addictions and life is all about pleasure and comfort, then we can turn to them and say, hey, you have to satisfy my heart. And it's kind of funny because pleasures cannot provide heaven and at best they're only temporary. We all know that. But yet we continue to do this in the form of some sort of addictions. Where can lasting pleasure and comfort be found in Christ? Where does the psalmist say pleasures are forevermore? God's right hand, right? How do we get to God's right hand? In Jesus. In Christ, there's lasting pleasure in heaven. In Christ, I can think about heavenly things even now. In Christ, there will one day be a true escape from pain, and that escape will become our new reality forever. Now, I don't want to demean those of us wrestling, and my own wrestlings as well, like, oh, this is so simple, just a magic bullet. Uh-uh, it's not going to be. But I think what a passage like this does is force us to sit down and ask these questions. What things do I cherish more than I cherish God? What things if I lost what I want to jump off a cliff over and start thinking about, well, those are my idols. How have I replaced God with them even though they stink compared to him? 
and how, what am I looking for in them? And in that thing that I'm actually looking for, where is it in Jesus Christ? Because it's there. It's there in fullness and richness. And beloved, again, this takes meditation, careful thought, in order that we can make progress in our holiness. Is this Savior, the loving, sacrificial Lord Jesus Christ, come to die for our sins and give us eternal life, our joy? If he's not, what we might discover is this. We stop growing for a while. We don't make much progress. We've begun to worship the gods of the nations, the gods of Pella, the gods of Iowa, of America, of capitalism, whatever the case may be. And when we discover that in ourselves, we can say, hey, Lord, I know you're way better than these gods. Restore the joy of my salvation. Grant me repentance from these idols. Help me to turn away and to love you above all. Because when I love you above all, life is just incredible. And I can grow. And my whole life, the reset button is pushed. And then family is family. A good thing, but not an ultimate thing. And work is just work. What a blessing but it's not something I live for. And pleasure and comforts along the way, joys, hey, thank you, Lord. But it's not like I put down my cross and I forget that I'm a follower of Jesus and follow him. I can pick it up now and continue walking after I've enjoyed a little bit of rest. Let's pray.